The following program is a presentation of Grace Communion International and Grace Communion Seminary and is made possible by generous donations from viewers like you. On this episode of You're Included, Dr. Steve McVeigh, President and Founder of Grace Walk Ministries, shares some of the theological insights he has gained over the years. Our host is Dr. Michael Morrison. Steve, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Glad to be back with you, Mike. In an earlier program we did, you talked about how you had a couple of theological transitions in your life, and you gave kind of a synopsis of the first one that you did. Maybe you could, uh, I don't know, give an even briefer synopsis uh, now and then describe the second one for sure, us. Sure, I'd be glad to. Well, you know, first let me back up and say that... Uh, I understood the gospel as a young boy. I grew up in a Christian family, and I, I believed on the Lord at a very early age. I became a senior pastor at 19 years old, and for 17 years as a senior pastor, I was very sincere, but I was I was caught up in the typical, uh, I'll call it traditional religious legalism, and that is the mindset that says that uh, God blesses me or, or approves of me because I'm doing all the right things that I need to be doing, you know, read my Bible, praying, involved in church, sharing the gospel, those kinds of things. And uh, in 1990, uh, the Lord brought me to a place in brokenness. That is, I came to the end of myself and, and my struggle of trying to be the, the perfect Christian and trying to be a good pastor. And he began to show me that it wasn't about me and what I could do for him, that he didn't call me for that. He didn't make me for that but instead it was about him and what he wanted to do through me. I wrote about that in my first book, Grace Walk. Grace Walk I wrote uh, in, uh, in the early 90s. It came out in 95, actually. And uh, I wrote about that time in life. That was the first, uh, I'll call it, as you said, monumental shift for me in my thinking. And the shift was I realized, first of all, that I was in union with Christ and that it wasn't... Uh, me, some Steve with a split personality, a, 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 an evil twin living inside, you know, a new nature and an old nature combating. But I began to understand co-crucifixion, that the old Steve was crucified with Jesus, and now Christ is my life. I begin to understand what it means to walk in grace instead of religious legalism, instead of building my life around rules, just relax and let him live his life through me. So we, we talked about that last time, and that was in 1990. Now, for many years, I, uh, in fact, for another 15 years, I taught that message. It's, it's, it's what uh, many have called the exchange life message. That, that exchange life is a phrase that Hudson Taylor, the missionary, coined to describe this idea of biblical truth that our old life died with Christ and that in its place he's given us a new life. I called it the grace walk. Hudson Taylor called it the exchange life. Some have called it the higher life, the deeper life. I think Andrew Murray called it the abiding life. Watchman Nee called it the normal Christian life. Whatever you want to call it, it just means Jesus living his life through us and understanding that our, our identity is in him. But the second, I'll call it cataclysmic event, a revelation even, if I can use that word, that came to me uh, and I began to grow in was just about six years ago. And uh, it was when I began to think, I've been a Calvinist now for over about 27 years. I've been a Calvinist. And... Uh, I believed and still believe in the sovereignty of, of God. That was the thing I found attractive about, about Calvinism. And so I'm not, I'm not trying to be disrespectful to those who hold a, a Reformed theological view or are Calvinist. But I know in my own teaching, I had said for many years, no matter how big you imagine God's love to be, it's bigger. And then I began to think about it, and I thought, now, wait a minute. 
Some of what I'm teaching about how big God's love is, is actually inconsistent with the tenets of what I have professed to believe. You know, the five points of Calvinism, of course, and for those that might be watching, they're represented by the acrostic tulip, you know, T-U-L-I-P, total depravity, unconditional election. Now, it was that third one that I began to grapple with, limited atonement, and then there's irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. But I began to think about that limited atonement, and I thought, now, wait a minute. Did God choose everybody or not? Because I've said, I've said everywhere, you know, God's love is bigger than you can imagine it to be. And I thought, if God is love the way that I'm teaching, how could this God that I'm teaching and that the Bible clearly says is love by essence, how could he intentionally choose the majority of his creation, his people born, to be reprobates, to never have the opportunity to even know him? How can I say that's love? How can I say that a minority of us will go to heaven and celebrate forever how loving he is when he purposely chose not to elect the majority of people? And so my theology, my concept of God began to mess with my biblical understanding. (laughs) Now, some people might get rattled with me for this, Mike, but it wasn't that I looked at the Bible and said, wait a minute, my, my Calvinistic understanding won't line up with Scripture. That wasn't what precipitated the change in me. What precipitated the the change was I began to say, wait a minute, the Christ who lives in me, who is the exact representation of his Father, I know him. I know him. He's not somebody who would decide to never choose the majority of those that would ever be born and include them in the finished work of the cross. And so my understanding of the Father through the the Son who lives in me and the Spirit who illuminates truth caused me to say, I've got to go back and look at the Bible again. And I went back and I began to study the Bible again with with fresh eyes, if I can use that phrase. I hope that makes sense. New lenses. A new lens, that's right. And it was the lens that said, my God is not a punitive judgmental God, but my God is love, pure and simple. That's not one of his characteristics. Love is not one of his attributes. Love is the DNA of God. And I began to go back into the Bible and study it again, and you know how the Holy Spirit works. I began to see things in Scripture in a different light, through the different lens that I'd never seen. And I began to realize that this God, the Father, did indeed express who he is through the Son in his earthly ministry. And the Holy Spirit does give us revelation of his love. And, and I begin to see a shift. And as, as I begin to bib, see a biblical transition in my thinking, well, the Lord brought along folks that, uh, lo and behold, had written on this very subject of what we, we, we know as trin- a Trinitarian perspective. And the Lord began to bring people across my path, guys like you right here at uh, Grace Communion International and people like Baxter Kruger and Thomas Torrance and J.F. Torrance and others, Robert Capon and some of these others that... Uh, have written from that perspective, and it's like, wow. It's like all these years I've been teaching the grace of God and what I call the grace walk, and now I get it. The grace of God is even bigger than I had thought. Even I don't guess we'll ever overestimate God's grace, will we? <laughs> Long question for a short answer, but that kind of at least sets us in the direction of where I, my thinking, it came from and where it, where it is these days. Yeah, so so it's, you examine the Bible from the perspective that God is like the Jesus you had been taught about, or the Jesus you had experienced. Uh, was there previously a disconnect 
between what you thought of God and what you saw as Jesus? Again, you know, the, the problem with speaking of my experiences, it might sound to somebody like I'm being critical of the evangelical world, and I'm not, but I will say I don't think my experience is unique. I had the idea that I think many do, <clears throat> that you have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the Father, in my thinking at the time, not now, this is not how I see it, but at the time, this Father was a just God who demanded that there be payment for sin. And he had this seething anger and to get it out of his system and balance the books and satisfy his justice, somebody had to pay. And that somebody was going to be me and you and everybody else. So yeah, I had this concept of this judicial, punitive, harsh God who... who found everything in him screaming out that his justice be avenged. And then I had the good cop. <laughs> you know what I mean? Bad cop, good cop. Jesus, who says, Father, Father, shh, 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 shh. it's okay. It's okay. How about this? How about if I go down, and I'm, I'm using hyperbole, okay. I'm not being fair to, to the evangelical perspective I grew up with. I've, sometimes I exaggerate things to make a point. So let me concede that at the start. But, I'm, but it, there's some truth in this. It's like my mindset was Jesus said, Father, how about this? I'll go down to the world. I'll live a sinless life. And on the I'll go to the cross and you can vent all this anger you have against sin toward me so that you won't have to vent it toward Steve. And God says, okay. So Jesus comes down into this world, lives a sinless life, goes to the cross, and God kicks the daylights out of his own son at the cross. He pours out his anger. He pours out his rage about sin onto Jesus. And he gets it out of his system. And now I believe on Jesus, and so God won't pour out his rage on me because he's poured it out on Jesus. But I'll tell you, even then in my mind, Mike, I had this idea that God still was, uh, is this you know, judicial God who's really obsessed with right and wrong, so that even as a Christian, when I would sin, God still would have come at me, but Jesus was going, Shh, Father, Father, the scars, the scars. And God said, <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, yeah, okay, you're right, the scars. And I thought God saw me through his son Jesus, and that's, that's what protected me. Now, the fallacy in that, Mike, is that what we've got is a schizophrenic God. And the Spirit, well, we won't even go there because I didn't belong to a charismatic or Pentecostal denomination, so I knew the Spirit existed, you know, but we didn't talk a lot about Him. But I knew the Spirit existed. But in my mind, so I had this harsh, judicial, judgmental God who had to have justice through punishment, and I had this loving Jesus. But the, the fallacy in that view is Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's the disconnect. What? How can I see loving Jesus and him say, I've seen the Father, if the Father was indeed angry and, and had some sort of justice? By the way, that's a distorted sense of God's justice. But had some sort of justice that necessitated that he vent anger against somebody about sin. No. Our triune God, three in one, all share the same heart and all share the same love and the same passion. And they, he has lived in this perichoresis, in this circle dance of love that has existed through eternity past and will exist through eternity future. And one day, our God said, you know, if I can take a little literary liberty, I'm a writer and a preacher. That's the double danger here. So, if he, said, so he says, if I can use a little imagery here, he says, you know, this love we share, Father, Son, and Spirit, it can't be, it can't be improved on. It's perfect now. It couldn't, couldn't be improved on. It's already perfect. But you know what we could do that would intensify it? We could share it. We could widen the circle. 
And so the Father, Son, and Spirit said in Genesis, let us make man in our own image. And you know the story. It starts right there in the garden when God created mankind. And the reason we're here is so that we can be loved by the Father through the Son and the communion of the Holy Spirit. That's what it's all about. It wasn't a good cop, bad cop. And even the fall of Adam, it didn't change God. You know, Adam hid because he thought God had now gone over the edge and was angry. No, God came for his walk in the evening just like he'd always done. Even though he knew what Adam had done. Exactly. Adam's sin didn't change God. It changed Adam's perception of God. And it's affected us and contaminated our view of God ever since, unless we see the truth in Scripture that we're talking about today. So God came and he, I mean, from the get-go, he told him, don't, you don't have to sweat it. You know, your, your, your seed will bru- his seed will bruise the, 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 seed, the heel of your offspring, but your offspring, speaking of Jesus, will bruise his head. One day the serpent, one day the devil will be destroyed. And in the meantime here, I'm going to cover you with these uh, animal skins, these bloody skins to show that there's the remedies on the way. Don't panic. And I'm going to banish you from the garden and keep you out so you won't eat from the tree of life and be doomed to this life of sin and distortion of forever and living under the delusion and the lies. From the beginning, it's grace, 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 grace. And then when Jesus came to the cross, contrary to my view, which as you understand, and some of the viewers will, called the penal substitution view, uh, the idea that Jesus took our punishment so that we wouldn't have to take it. No, Paul said it this way, the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. God the Father was in the Son, and over in Hebrews it said he offered himself by the eternal spirit. We've got the whole trinity. We've got the, our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit on a rescue mission. Not God the Father punishing Jesus, the Father and the Son and the Spirit in sync, working together to rescue us from this, 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 this destroying thing called sin that would, that would uh, to use C.S. Lewis's kind of imagery, make us wither away into nothingness mm-hmm. if he didn't come along. I, but I, you know, I get excited about this. <laughs> I get excited about it. So there, there was no change in God's attitude toward us? Because of the death of Jesus? Here's, some, here's a verse some people know. God says, I'm, I'm, I'm God, I, I, I change not. God's never changed. God's always loved us. No, God, God's, God's heart was toward us before the death of Jesus. That's why Jesus came. It's not that God was against us, God the Father, and Jesus came to change God's mind about us. Jesus came to change our mind about God, the Father. Not to change the Father's mind about us, the Father, had, the Son, the Spirit had always loved us. And Jesus came to help us see that. And lo and behold, who were his biggest critics when he tried to show and express that love? Well, it wasn't the drunken, cursing sailors, was it? It wasn't the woman taken in adultery. It wasn't the harlot who washed his feet with her hair and using the perfume from the alabaster box. No. The people who got all bent out of shape about Jesus saying, let me show you the kind of loving father you've, you've got. The people that got bent out of shape by it were the religious people. And my friend, when I teach this <laughs> message today and you teach it and everybody you have on this program teaches it, we find out the same thing still happens. It's not those out there, so to speak. I hate to use that term in, in a dichotomy like that, but it's not those that don't believe. It, it's, it's those that profess to believe. They get mad as the devil about the love of God. They're the older brother in the story of the prodigal. I know, I, I know. I'm a, I'm a charter member of that club, buddy. You know what I'm saying? I uh, live there. But you 
as the older brother, finally went into the party. Which gives me hope. That's why I share this message of, of perichoresis now, because, uh, boy, if I could go in, if I could finally one day say, you know, if my, and thank God it speaks well of my father, that he stood out there in the darkness of my own religion. He stood out there in the darkness when I was saying, no, 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 God's not like that. That, that it can't be that good. That you can't tell me everybody gets off scot free. You can't tell me everybody's included. You can't tell me that God loves us all. This no, no. But my father didn't give up. But he kept pleading and appealing and showing and wooing. And that's an old word, isn't it? This biblical word and enticing me to uh, to see his love until finally, like that prodigal, at least we know he melted in his father's embrace and accepted it. The interesting thing about the older brother in the story in Luke 15 is we don't know if he went in or not. But one thing we do know, the father never went in without him. <laughs> he didn't go in, but neither did the father. Hmm. So our God doesn't give up on us. And man, this whole idea of this, of, of this, this perichoresis, this, this, this dancing with deity concept, this idea that, that we live in the communion of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and we live out of that as our reality. That's enough to excite anybody. And it's, it's not just us, but the essence of this program that you, you guys have here, you're included, points toward the good news of the gospel that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Everybody was wrapped up in that big bear hug, that big group hug at the cross, not just the religious people. Well, that'd be a sour party, wouldn't it? <laughs> not, just, not just the people that believe, but we're all wrapped up in it. Now, somebody's going to watch us and say, well, don't you think we have to believe? Well, sure. Well, sure. Who wants to stand outside in the darkness of unbelief? You're missing the party. But let the record show both sons had the same privileges. Just one accepted his acceptance and the other didn't. But what are the consequences if we don't believe? Now, you're going to stand out there in the cold and the dark and miss out on the party. But don't blame your father because <laughs> as, as the father of the, in Luke 15 said, the, the accepting father in that story that we call the prodigal, he said to his older son, he said, look, he said, everything, everything that I have is yours. You see, the problem with unbelievers is that, unbelief. Hmm. It's not like there's something left for God to do for them. God's done what he's going to do for all of us. He's done what he's going to do for humanity. The the, the, the problem that exists, and listen, I'm speaking as a pastor. I've been preaching since I was 16. For 40 years I've been preaching. I was a pastor of traditional institutional church for 21 years. And I'm telling you the problem is in the modern church world, and I don't mean it to be mean, it's just a fact. The problem is we don't preach the pure gospel. By and large, we preach a potential gospel, not the pure gospel. We say, here's what Jesus did for you now. If you will believe, then he'll forgive your sin. No, it's not if you believe. If you will believe, then he'll, you'll be reconciled to God. No, if you believe, then he'll do this or that. No, 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 that's not the gospel. That's a potential gospel. The gospel is good news that says he's already done it, whether you believe it or not. Now, if you don't believe it and want to, again, stand out in the darkness, you're going to miss out on the party. But the truth is, the objective reality of what he did at the cross is real, whether you believe it or not. But by believing it, we experience it. And experiencing it is where the abundance comes in that Jesus talked about in John 10, 10, when he said, I've come so that you might have life and have it more abundantly. You said earlier that 
Jesus didn't die as a, as a punishment. God didn't punish Jesus on the cross. Uh, why, why then did he die? Uh, what's the connection between his death and our salvation? Good question. Because this thing called sin had infected all of humanity through Adam, and it's a congenital disease that everybody's born with, and it's deadly. It's fatal. The wages of sin is death. And so sin was being passed down from person to person to person through the generations from Adam. And God saw that left to ourselves, we would be destroyed by sin. And our God said, no, no, no. Sin shall not have the last word. Sin will not be the trump card. I didn't create mankind to wither away into nothingness. I didn't create humanity to, to, to die out. No, sin won't have the last word. And again, to use a literary imagery, it's like the Father, Son, and Spirit said, we're going to go down there. We're not coming back till this thing is done. And they came. He, Jesus the Son, came, empowered by the Spirit, superintended, if you will, by the sovereignty of the Father. He came into this world to finish a job. And what did he come to finish? Well, Daniel 9, 24 says this, prophesying about the Messiah. He said, he'll make an end of sin. He'll make an end. He'll finish the transgression. Well, along comes Jesus with all these millennia later showing up on planet Earth, and the angel said, call him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sin. Come on down the road another three decades or so, and here's John the Baptist saying, look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then before his crucifixion, you've got Jesus holding up that cup saying, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the remission of sin. Ah, we're getting closer. He came on mission to finish a task. All the way from Daniel, he'll finish the transgression, Daniel 9, 24. Make an end to sin. And then here's Jesus on the cross. And what does he do? He takes all the sin of the world and he draws it into himself. It's not God the Father punishing Jesus. It's sin punishing Jesus. Now, let me, let's be clear. Sin brings punishment. But it's not God who brings the punishment. It's sin. The wages, the punishment, the penalty of sin is death. And Jesus draws that into himself. It's not God. I'll give you an example. A poor diet and poor exercise habits will lead to the punishment of bad health. But it's not God that's punishing you with bad health. It's your own choices. Those habits are pregnant with punishment, with penalty. And so it is with sin. And so it wasn't God punishing Jesus. It was sin punishing Jesus. And he drew it all into himself. And when he had drawn the sin of the world into himself, now that which had been started in the eternal circle of heaven before the beginning of time, comes to climactic uh, finish at the cross when Jesus said, it's finished. It's finished. And he dealt with it. And that's the gospel we proclaim. Later on, John in his epistle would say, you know that he appeared to take away the sins of the world. The writer of Hebrews would say, he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Well, the question I would ask the evangelical church and myself included is, did he succeed or not? <laughs> did he fail or did he do what he came to do? We know he, came, he did what he came to do and he did succeed and it is finished and it's all, it's all over now except the celebrating. <laughs> <laughs> and, and those of us that believe it are celebrating. But, but yet we look around and you know, the world around us, we even look at ourselves and say, whoa, uh, sin isn't completely gone. That's right. That's exactly right. We live in this little box called time-space and we need, to, we need to be clear about one thing, and that is the old Adamic race died with Jesus, and he did defeat sin. He conquered it once and for all. 
the, as the phrase goes, once and for all. But you see, unless we know the truth, people say the truth will set you free. Well, the truth is Jesus dealt with sin. No, 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 no. The Bible doesn't say the truth will set you free. The Bible says you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's not just the truth that sets you free. It's knowing the truth that sets you free. And so now the truth is he has dealt with sin. He's conquered it. It has no power over us. But if you don't believe, if you either don't know or you don't believe the truth, then a person will still live under the lie that befell Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And if they appropriate the lie, then guess what they're going to live like? They're going to live as if the lie is true. It's not. They're going to live in a counterfeit reality, which seems like an oxymoron, but you get my point. They're going to live out of a delusion. They're going to live as if Christ didn't really do what he did, but he did. Back to the 2 Corinthians 5 passage. I love, if I can turn over there, just had a brain freeze. I want to read it instead of try to quote it. Um, yeah, we're, we're all big on verse 17. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. We all, most, most Christians know that one. But let's come down to verse 19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. There's the objective reality. That's real whether anybody believes it or not. Then it says, and he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. There's the subjective reality. In other words, it is real whether you believe it or not. But we're begging you. We're appealing to you. Believe it so that it'll be real to you. Yeah, that verse said that uh, he wasn't counting people's trespasses against them. Does that mean that I don't need to ask for his forgiveness? Bingo. <laughs> In fact, it insults the finished work of Christ when you do ask for forgiveness. I'm glad you asked that because, you know, this is one of those things that is so misunderstood in the church world. He has, how about Colossians 2? Let me turn over there a minute. You better be careful. You're going to put me in a preaching mode here in just a minute if you, because I, I do get excited about this. How about this one? Colossians 2, 13. Um, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you to alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees which was against us and hostile to us. He's taken out of the way and nailed it to the cross. Now, I would say to everybody who watches us, do we believe this Bible or not? Because this, this Bible, Colossians 2.13 says, he's blotted out all our transgressions. Somebody says, you mean my future sins? Well, here's a question. How many of our sins were future when Jesus died? They were all future sins. Yes, he dealt with all of our sins at the cross. They were all future sins, and he's dealt with them all. Now, let me add real quickly, Mike. That doesn't mean to confess my sin doesn't mean that I'm asking for forgiveness because somebody's going to throw out 1 John 1, 9. That's what always pops out. I've been teaching this a long time now. That's not to say I won't confess. I won't admit. Confess just means to agree, to say the same. Of course I'm going to acknowledge it when I've sinned. But I don't do it to get forgiveness. I do it because I've already gotten forgiveness. There's a big difference between the two. First John 1, 9, if I can give an amplified explanation or paraphrase, would, might read like this. Since it's the nature of the believer to constantly admit it when we've sinned, so is it the nature of God to constantly relate to us from a posture of forgiveness, keeping us cleansed of all unrighteousness. My thing is I admit it. What else am I going to do? Lie, he knows. His thing is to keep me in that state of constant forgiveness because of the work of the cross. What else is he going to do? It's finished. But so often we try to repent and prove our repentance and show how sorry we are. That's idolatry, you know. You know why it's idolatry? 
Because if I think I have to show my sorrow and I have to wallow in self-condemnation and I have to rededicate myself and promise God this or that, then what I'm really saying is I don't believe the work of the cross was enough to deal with sin. There's a contribution I need to add to it. And what I add is going to put it over the top. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Idolatry. Let's just relax. We're forgiven. Let's just believe in the finished work of Christ. Somebody says, but you tell people that, they're going to go out and live like the devil. No, they won't. Authentic grace won't do that. Paul told Titus this. Titus, he said, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and how to live soberly, righteously, and just in this present age. Grace is divine enablement for us to live a godly lifestyle. It doesn't create a desire to sin. It creates an appetite for righteous living. That's what grace does, real grace. Anything else is disgrace. (laughs) You've been watching You're Included, a production of Grace Communion International.